Welcome to Twilled Week in Health Law, the high-risk pool podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 3rd, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host, who knew all along the cause of the American Civil War. Frank Pasquale, a law professor from a border state, Maryland, University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> so, Frank, this week on Twill, a real pleasure to welcome Robert Smolt, Chief Administrative Officer Emeritus of Mayo Clinic. Uh, since 2010, he served as Associate Director of the Arizona State University Healthcare Delivery and Policy Program. When he was at Mayo, he worked in a variety of administrative positions in both medical and surgical departments prior to being named the Chief Administrative Officer. Uh, Bob also served two terms on the Board of Catholic Health Initiatives, among many, many other achievements. Uh, now at ASU, you can read his insightful commentary in places like The Hill and the Health Affairs blog. It's a great pleasure to have you on the pod, Bob. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to be here. I appreciate being asked. Well, as we record this episode of the pod, our nation's capital is debating a health policy question from last century, uh, whether to contain healthcare costs by excluding millions from healthcare. Uh, today, with Bob's help, we're going to concentrate on 21st century approaches to bending the cost curve. Let me throw out two sort of very general questions to both start the conversation and to ground our listeners in some of the terminology and some of the issues that we're going to be discussing. At least part of the time, we're going to be talking about value. And I guess it would be useful to know how we conceive of value or define value. And then a second sort of gentle slope question, how does payment for value or P4V differ from the 1990s pay for performance or P4P? Those are great questions. And I think it is appropriate we start out, if we want to pay for value to define and what we mean when we talk about value. From my perspective and that of our little program here at Arizona State, value is a, basically a, a very simple formula. It's quality over cost. Quality to us is patient outcomes, a safe environment, and service, which is patient satisfaction, over the cost of care per patient per period of time. All of those are measurable. And so you actually can uh, calculate an index of value for every medical center in the United States. State. So that's, that's what we mean by value, getting very good patient outcomes using fewer resources and thus lower costs. Now, how does pay for value different from the old pay for performance? I'm glad you asked that because that's that used to be one of my hot buttons, but I think we're moving away from the reason it was a hot button of mine. When we, to, if you notice my definition is patient outcomes, safe environment, that's patient outcome as well, and service, which is also a patient outcome. When we put in pay for performance, performance, primarily what we were looking at is, did we do selected process items that there was consensus of things that we should do for patients? So it wasn't based on patient outcome. And my hypothesis is that if you're going to have financial incentives involved in pay for performance and the performance is completing process items, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get a lot of processes. And when people started looking at, did completion of many of these processes really relate to patient outcomes, many of the studies said they didn't. So my thought is we really should go right to what we're trying to get, which is patient outcomes. So we're, we're going to move to that. And back when uh, we were in Washington in the 
around the 2007 to 9 time frame, we'd often say, we hear from congressmen, you know, we're not getting what we pay for. And our answer by our, I mean the people, mainly Dr. Denny Cortese and myself, we were worked together at Mayo and now we work together here at ASU. We would uh, often say, you know, we really are because that's what we're paying for. We're paying for a lot of uh, a lot of services. And if we paid for value, perhaps we, we might actually get it. So that's very helpful. But let me let me push you just a little bit. When you look at a sort of a, a value-based bundle, therefore, why isn't that also just a process? It's a thing. It's a bigger thing, just like a DRG was bigger than a single uh, FFS. But it's still a single thing, just a larger one. It, it is a larger one. But you know what? We have kind of also called, if you if what your objective is to go to a pure capitation, and there are many good reasons to do that, the bundled payment really is kind of a mini capitation. And it could be a step in that particular direction. But the other difference is, if you if we go to bundled payments and we base the bundled amount that you get on the patient outcomes and what medical centers are doing that get very good outcomes using fewer resources, then it's very different than the old pay for performance that was based strictly on processes. When I say processes, I mean, when you went in the hospital, did you did you have a, if you had a cardiac condition, were you given an aspirin? Uh, and so you can get these big, long lists. And then what you find people, providers doing, if that's what you're going to measure them on, you start measuring, are you doing the list? And there is a place for that. I'm not talking against the list, but the, the re- financial reward should not come from doing the list. It should come from actually getting good patient outcomes. And on that note, I'm wondering if we could zoom out a little bit and talk about the overall principles that should guide uh, the future of value-based payment here. Thank you, Frank. That's that's a very good one. I personally think principles are very important. And when I talk about pay for value, I tend to use three that were laid out by Dr. Stu Gutterman, oh, three or four years ago when he was at the Commonwealth Fund. And he had an article on this. And he said, we really should base these on principles. He had three, three pretty simple ones. Number one, the financial incentives should actually incent reduce costs. Pretty simple. Number two, his words now, it should have safeguards for quality. My own feeling is we should do that, but we should go beyond that and actually have incentives, financial incentives for quality as well. But the third one he has is the one that gets overlooked almost all the time in my view. And it was the payments that the providers get should ensure that the providers who are providing the highest value, in other words, getting best out outcomes using fewer resources have financial viability as we go to the future. We don't look at that one very much. Now, I personally would add a fourth principle, and that is to go where the money is. And we all know the statistics. The top 5%, the most expensive patients are 50% of the cost. Top 10% are 66% of the cost. But I think what we we tend to overlook the uh, converse of this whole thing. Take a look at the least expensive 50% of patients. And what percent of the cost is that? I mean, get get a number in your mind. It's 3% of the cost, 3%. So we can have payment models that if we're trying to change a payment model for every patient episode that happens in the United States, we're going to be spending a lot of time on patient visits, uh, patient experiences that are not going to impact costs very much. So let's concentrate on the expensive conditions. And I think that's where bundled payments can play a part. Yes, I really appreciate that. And I I mean, it is such a breath of fresh air and a refreshing corrective to the usual policy discourse we get, even in relatively
relatively sophisticated places where they talk about, you know, when you're at a grocery store, you know, and trying to analogize people's everyday purchases of, say, something like LASIK and making that a model for the overall system. I think you're absolutely right in terms of focusing on these uh, very high cost conditions. One connection that I wanted to make to ask you to embellish a bit on uh, from your, your last answer, Bob, is the question of margin. Because I know that you have a health affairs piece where I believe that when you were discussing the per patient per month uh, sort of allowance that would be part of a value-based payment regime, you also mentioned the need to have build in, say, a 2.5% margin. And I was wondering, like, how did the 2.5% figure come in? Is it from, for example, our friend Nicholas Bagley's ideas about um, healthcare as a regulated utility? Or are there other ideas about how that margin figure would come into the, uh, the equation? It came into the equation simply because uh, those of us in our ASU program come with a provider background. We recognize you have to have a positive margin or you're not going to be around long term. Now, to me, what the amount you need depends on your plan for capital expenditures in the future to a large extent. Because if you aren't going to be expanding, if you aren't going to be, be uh, adding a lot of equipment, you probably don't need as much. So we just threw out a particular number that's in the general range. But the concept really is not so much what is the, what is the number, but that there needs to be a positive margin. Yeah, I think that's important. I think that's very important to sort of have an overall concept and then also to, to give a number for a benchmark. I'm also wondering about your concept in uh, the health affairs piece of secondary reinsurance, because I think, you know, when we're talking about these type of catastrophic episodes, you know, the hospital may not know if the really most expensive case, if that person might be in the ICU for two months or five months or, you know, what type of new cancer care they might be uh, needed to provide, things like that. And do you think that this secondary reinsurance market exists at present in, say, the global reinsurance market of things like Swiss Ray that they'd be interested in this? Or do you think it's something that, you know, a la David Moss, we would need to have more government uh, motivation and incentives for reinsurers to come into this? I think that it can be worked in. The other thing that, that can be worked in uh, it is the reinsurance. But it, if you're also, if you actually, if you're a provider and you actually negotiate with a payer for a bundled payment, you can build some of this in for the extreme outliers. At Mayo Clinic, we've done bundles uh, and done, bun, done bundles for an extended period of time, way beyond the initial hospitalization for years. And we wrote them into those contracts. It's a lot easier to do it if you're dealing with private insurers than, than, you, uh, than if you're dealing with Medicare. But that's that's another, another way to do it. I would like to visit uh, my thoughts on the bundled payments that Medicare oh, yes. is putting in and some of the good things I think they're doing in some places where I think they could improve. Oh, absolutely. Yes. We, our listeners would love to hear about that. I really do think Medicare has been doing uh, some good things. And I'll try to relate this back to the Gutterman uh, principles. The number one is if you look at the bundled payment initiative they put out, there are 48 different bundled payment episodes that they've identified that a provider can work with. The interesting thing about that is those 48 episodes account for 70% of Medicare's total cost. So if you go to the Smolt add-on principle, it definitely is looking at that, let's try to get to the expensive patient. So I think that's good. The second is that they are going beyond the initial hospitalization. They include uh, physicians, Part B, post-acute care, readmissions, and uh, in the bundle amount. And all of that is going to encourage efficiency, fewer total services. And so that meets the Gutterman principle one of reducing costs. They have extended the episode length beyond the initial hospitalization. And I think that's very good. That 
encourages more integration of care. So you don't, so the providers, the patients don't have complications, don't have as many uh, readmissions, don't have any, as many days in the ICU, the most expensive place to get care, et cetera. And it will, in fact, the fact that you're doing that will lower complication. We've seen that in our experience at Mayo. Sweden saw it when they went to uh, bundle payments uh, in their country. So that meets both uh, Gutterman's principles one and two. It's improving the cost and it's uh, improving the quality because you have fewer patient complications. And then the fourth thing that's good is they are doing quality monitoring of the individual providers and they let that be known. So it's, again, following the Gutterman principle of the of the safeguards. So I think those are all very good. I do think there are uh, <clears throat> places where Medicare could improve. The most important one to me by far was actually expressed a couple of years ago by Paul Ginsburg and Alice Rivlin when they wrote an article on Medicare at 50, 50 years old. So I think it was 2015. And they were writing about Medicare in this article going to the value-based alternative payment models and some of the problems they saw coming. And they said the major problem was, and I quote now, provider-specific benchmarks that reward improvement rather than level of performance. End quote. Reward improvement rather than level of importance. And I think this is a major problem. It basically, where even the bundle payments, in your mind, you might think, well, Medicare is going to go in and they're going to set a bundled amount. And that's what you're going to have for the country, perhaps adjusted for some things. But it isn't. It's what that individual hospital did in the past. And then everybody's expected to get an improvement. So it's kind of a, it's a bundle shared savings approach. And it's rewarding improvement, not level of performance. Now, you might say, well, don't we want to improve? But let me give you the magnitude of the difference. There is huge variability in utilization, cost, and quality in the United States. Our program, because we had the data available, looked at coronary artery bypass graphs in California. And we developed an outcomes measure that was risk-adjusted patient outcomes, primarily mortality-type rates, a risk-adjusted safety measure, and service. And we measured every hot every California hospital that does cabbages, and we created an index. Now, 100 was the average. So if you were 160, you were 60% better than the average. If you were 60, you were 40% worse than the average. Then we made it in a graph, and that's on the vertical axis. On the horizontal axis, we have cost per cabbage. And California had a system where we could look at their actual charges. That's not cost, and this is rack rate charges. And then they have a cost-to-charge ratio. So you can get an estimate of what the actual costs are. Well, the costs range from about $24,000 to almost $90,000 per case. So there's huge variability. Now, if we use the shared savings approach the way the way Medicare is doing it for bundles, let's take what I consider the highest value California Cabbage Hospital. It has 50% better than expected outcomes. Its costs were about uh, $34,000. The worst value hospital, its outcomes were about 40% worse than average, and its costs was about $84,000. Now, if you do your bundled payments in a way where they're both just supposed to say, well, that's what you did in the past, improved by 5%, that means the high value hospital should get to $33,700 and the low value hospital should get to $78,000. Now, what's happened in many of the demos, these high, low value hospitals, the ones very high cost, have no problem reaching that cost target. If they can't do that, they ought to retire. The medical centers that are all ready low cost struggle to do it year after year. So now the typical situation
situation would be at the end of the year, the high value hospital gets to 34,000 rather than 33,000 and Medicare will probably ask for money back. And the low value hospital will get to their $78,000 and get a reward. So you have a hospital that is costing you 34,000, you're penalizing. You have another one costing 78,000 and more than twice as much and its quality is worse and that's the hospital getting the reward. That is what Rivlin and Ginsburg were talking about, rewarding improvement rather than level of performance. So that's that's a major uh, area where I think uh, we need to uh, have improvement. And what we would do is we'd set a prospective national rate that you would adjust for patient severity of the patients you have, for the geographic cost of doing business. It costs more to take to do business, take care of, uh, uh, su- buy supplies, people, uh, equipment in San Francisco than it does Rochester, Minnesota. So San Francisco should get paid more. So you have that factor and then you have an incentive for patient outcome. So we think those are uh, two things that could be done. Another is that Medicare goes in and, and they change these uh, the bogus amounts quarterly. And you might say well, that would be good, but it, it, the providers don't have anything they can count on. It's a constantly moving target and the Medicare tends to not notify you of it until about six months later. So let's set a national price. Let's hold to it for a year so providers can count on. And the other thing is we tend to keep these demonstrations as demonstrations. Why don't we roll them out nationally once we think that they've been proven? That's the way we're going to actually get the benefit. So those are the areas where I think we could actually improve what we're doing in bundle payment. That's really interesting because you to, to roll these out nationally, you'd have to, to find out in which basement the innovation center has been put. <laughs> so being the dumb guy who who took Latin and not math, let me, let me move you backwards a little bit and see if I'm getting this. What you're talking about is, I think what you put in the, the health of AS piece, you describe as reality-based pricing. So you're looking at actual costs incurred or actual pricing that is set for the best outcomes. If I'm right about that, and you can pull it off practically, given the, the heterogeneous nature of patients and providers across this great country, assuming that you can pull that off. Two questions. First of all, rather than bending the cost curve, however attractive this approach is, will we not be, in fact, spending more than Medicare? And secondly, and perhaps a little more subtly or contrarian even, aren't there some areas where we might want to settle for a less than optimal outcome, but at a dramatically lower price? Those are excellent questions. Gutterman's principle three says we should be setting these payments, these alternative payment models at rates that allow the good medical centers to cover their costs. And we would say make a small margin. So we don't know the answer to your question. Would it increase what would be, uh, what would happen to Medicare payments? Because we really don't know what the actual costs are in that high value quadrant. What we're suggesting is not a cost plus deal for every medical center in the country. People confuse that when we say we ought to cover a reference cost plus a small margin, but it would only be based on what the medical centers do in what we call the upper left quadrant. But I can tell you this on what we're doing right now. The 
right now we're set in the Medicare program, we're setting these bun- uh, bundled payment amounts on what Medicare pays rather than the actual costs. That could lead to significant problems if you listen to the Medicare actuary for both medical centers and patients because the Medicare actuary agrees you can't lose money on these people forever and stay in business. The reason I think it's a problem, let me give you let me give you a couple of statistics on what Medicare pays right now, but these are Medicare averages, not necessarily high value. If you go to the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission report for March 2017, it shows a hot, you can find it in there, a hospital margin for Medicare patients. Their estimate for 2017 is that it's minus 10%, so losing 10% on those patients. And that is with Medicare allowed costs. I would encourage you to go get the regulations on what are Medicare allowed costs, because there are quite a few things in there that I personally, as a former administrator running a medical center, feel are costs that we have to cover one way or the other. For instance, you wouldn't have a television set in your room. You wouldn't have a telephone. Probably wouldn't need it anymore because of cell phones. But you get into things like you can't have private rooms or you can't have the cost of private rooms. That's not allowed. And certain of the, if you have so many investments, then some of your bond interest expenses and counted. It's almost like there isn't a cost of capital regardless of how you use your capital. So at any rate, what I'm saying is the actual average margin for total costs would be worse than the 10%. But here's the one that I find the most interesting. And Frank, it goes back to your state of Maryland because Maryland is an all-payer rate setting for hospitals. Yes. And there's a CMS report that came out in October of 2016. It's titled Evaluation of Maryland All-Payer Model. And they have a table in there that I found very interesting. It's the weighted average payment per admission in Maryland and a matched comparison Medicare, a regular Medicare payment to other hospitals. So they match up similar hospitals, similar patients, say, how much does Maryland pay for this? What's Medicare pay? So get in your mind, what do you think the difference is? If Maryland is actually doing a good job of setting these rates, you would increase Medicare payments by 25.7%. Maryland is paying the hospitals 25.7% more, according to this CMS report, than other hospitals in the country get. And the other interesting thing, both the Medicare MedPAC report and this Maryland report, the direction we're going. In 2012, Maryland Maryland was getting 20.7% more. By 2015, it was 25.7%. On the uh, MedPAC margin in 2010, it was minus 4.9. 2017, it's minus 10. What's happened is that with MACRA and with the ACA, we've put payment rate changes to basically be less than general, best than inflation. And this is what the Medicare actuary, if you go to their reports, they basically say you just can't do that forever and not have impacts. So I think those are areas that uh, we have to be concerned about. I do agree with that. And I mean, I think there's also, uh, we, had a, we had a guest on named Gwian McKee that talked about the macroeconomic effect of slowly draining the lifeblood of institutions that keep a lot of communities stable um, and that do a lot of incredibly important research that, you know, a lot of the world is free rider on, but we're creating a huge amount of uh, information, knowledge, research at these institutions. And I think they're well worth, you know, supporting. One other thing that, you know, I was just thinking about some of the concrete examples you were giving, Bob, including the private room. And isn't it the case that, like, I, I mean, now here I may be showing my ignorance of medical practice, but I had a sense that private rooms were being almost clinically 
contraindicated in many settings because you want to avoid patients infecting one another. So it almost seems like it's a, it might be an example of one of these cost-cutting measures that you penny-wise, pound-foolish. Maybe we tell the hospitals, oh, just pack them in, but then it turns out that there's more infections or something. I, I don't know. Seems seems worrisome. I don't know of any any study that did that, Frank, but I, I would share your your uh, same concern, actually. Yes. You know, it's it's a little interesting to me. Uh, we've called this the uh, the general, the fallacy of paying for Y and expecting X. And, you know, so if you pay, if you pay fee for service, you should expect a lot of services. If you pay for performance and performance is process, expect a lot of process. If you, but by the converse, if you pay very low fee for service, which is where Medicare is heading, you're going to get even more services. In other words, more patients per day. And a good example of that, I think, is Japan. If you tend to pay per diem, you're going to get long lengths of stay. A good example of that, again, is Japan. But so our best hope to get value is if we try to pay for it from our standpoint. And, you know, I worry that I'm going to come across and say, well, this is a magic bullet. And boy, you just do this and everything's groovy. <laughs> but I don't think that's the case. All of these actually have some advantages and disadvantages. And, it, and it's kind of which ones are you are you willing to put up with? Um, so uh, I, I think it, there isn't just one perfect answer. And we can come up and try a number of them and I think make progress. And I'm just wondering about the Japanese example, because I know that you've written uh, in a journal about this, and I was wondering if you could, and we got a, a little taste of it from your last answer, but if you could give us uh, some sense of why you became interested in Japan and the larger set of lessons there. I've been fortunate to, over a number of years to be able to initially just give presentations in Japan for uh, Global Health Consulting, which is a big uh, medical center consulting firm there. And then we evolved where uh, we had access to data and we did uh, some analysis of it. Um, but uh, it, with the general question, there is a, a phrase on the first part about the physician visits that uh, they ha it's a commonly used over there. It's something like, and I'll murder this if you have anybody listening who actually speaks Japanese. It's something <laughs> like Sanji Kan Machi Sanpun Shinsatsu. But the translation is three hour wait, three minute visit. And what's happened, Japan has really lowered rates that they pay physicians. And so physicians don't see patients for very long and they haven't come back. Japan is an absolute outlier in terms of the number of physician visits per patient per year on average. It's double digits. It's, it, I think they in Korea are, are way over. And some people say, well, gee, that's good. To me, I don't think so. I don't think that it, it's good. You're, you're not getting things taken care of the first time, so you have to come back. What we actually studied, though, was in the hospital, and we made recommendations very similar to we talked about today to the uh, Minister for Health to Japan. In the in the hospital setting, we looked. We had data on over 500 hospitals. We looked at total knees and total and total hips. But on total knees alone, we had over 11,000 uh, patients that were in our data set. Japan hospitals get paid a per diem. Now, gr granted, it's a graduated per diem, so the longer you're in, the lower the daily amount gets. But that said, uh, how long do you think Japanese average length of stay is for a total knee patients? So if you just get a number in your mind, what we actually found was that it was 29 days. That compares to three in the United States. And you were talking a little bit earlier, gee, many Christmas we have uh, infections you get in uh, hosp in hospitals, would you really want to be around that long? So I think part of this is a cultural thing in Japan, this long length of stay. But I also believe if they would change to pay to a true bundled payment amount, those lengths of stay would come down 
uh, dramatically. And you might say, when I first showed this to some of my previous colleagues at Mayo Clinic, they said, oh my gosh, they must have some patients that have really significant problems. So we decided, well, let's take a look at a subset of these patients because we had complication rates for every hospital. And so we took, took a look at just those hospitals that had 0% complication, no complication. Surgery went great. Average length of stay for those hospitals it was actually a little bit higher, 31 days. So it's really interesting. And another a tidbit, sorry you got me into this, Frank, but uh, <laughs> what, you know, the old thing here that uh, there's a relationship between surgical volume and patient outcomes. So we're looking at surgical volumes in, in these Japanese hospitals with over these 12,000 patients and, uh, and the complication rate. And it was fascinating because you could see the deflection point where all of a sudden, if you did fewer than 70 cases, the complication rate on average went up significantly. Fairly similar to what you see in, in other studies. That's around 70 number. But there's a huge difference between the U.S. and the Japan. The percent of the hospitals that do total knees in Japan that do fewer than 70 cases, it's 90% of the hospitals. 90% of the hospitals doing total knees were doing fewer than 70 cases. In the United States, it's 10%. So it's really different issues. I mean, Japan does very well on a lot of uh, international statistics, but how they, the clinical practice styles are obviously very different. So it's, it's kind of fascinating. So Bob, unfortunately, our our time uh, rushes by when we have these great conversations. But uh, let me just ask a, a couple more questions. So I get how we need these, can I just call them, much smarter bundled payments. And yes, I can conceptualize how we're talking about approaches like the CMS's CJR for hip replacements and so on. I also get the point about moving towards a full capitation model, but we also have to deliver the care. And we know about integrated healthcare and its positive role in reducing fragmentation, both as to payments, but also as to quality of care and so on. But can you take us into slightly more uh, granular territory with integrated healthcare? How integrated models outperform and what metrics do you use to to gauge that? Well, it's a great question, and it's obviously a big interest of mine as well. Can I give an, an example? Because what is integrated? Absolutely. What is integrated care? I can tell you one thing. There are a lot of hospitals, in my view, there are a lot of hospitals that say they're going to integrated delivery systems, and yet they're still hospital-based systems. So I don't think that's necessarily integrated care. So here's how I define integrated care. It goes back to the former head of hospital administration at the University of Chicago. I had gotten to know him when I was a very young administrator at Mayo Clinic. And he called me up one day and said, I've got some problems. Could I come to Mayo? So I set him up. He, he was there for a few days, called me up, said, I'm ready to go back. Let's have a cup of coffee. So we sat down and he said, let me explain the difference between getting care at Mayo Clinic and getting care in Chicago. He said, I have three medical problems. I saw my general interest. He said, you have three medical problems. There's a great specialist for problem A in suburb A. There's a great specialist for problem B in suburb B. There's a great specialist for problem C in suburb C. He went off, tried to get appointments at all those. Took him many months. He actually did get to them, wasn't getting any better. He said, so I came to Mayo Clinic. What happened? I saw an internist. He said, you got three problems. He ordered up all the tests that were going to be needed. He ordered up the consultations with his colleagues who all worked in the same place. Uh Uh And they all got together and they said, here's here's what we think is going on here. And he had been given medications that were working against each other by the independent, fragmented specialist. So to me, that 
that is what integrated care is. And it isn't just Mayo Clinic that does it. There are many, I think, multi-specialty group practices tend to be very good at this. But who I really take my hat off to are the independent practice, the independent physician associations who have single specialty independent docs who agree to work together. And we've worked with some of them with our ASU program, and they do a great job. And they they somehow or other have been able to get these independent docs to agree we're gonna we're gonna provide care in an integrated fashion. They years ago they created their own health information exchange because all their independent docs had their own little separate electronic systems, but they had an information exchange so all of them would know what was going on. And they take capitation. They've taken capitation for years and been able to do it. Why? Because they have gotten them to actually integrate the care in the manner that I spoke about for my old uh, professor at the University of Chicago. So I, I if you want to look at really a person who has studied the integrated care and the advantages for it is Steve Shortell out at, uh, he actually was at the University of Chicago studying under this same professor, uh, but uh, he's at Berkeley right now. And he's he's studied and written on this quite a bit. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Dr. Schmolt for joining us. That was uh, great fun having you on the pod, Bob. It was a lot of fun to do it, I tell you that. You know, my wife said, I'm so glad that you're talking with them about alternative payment models and I don't have to listen to you once again. So thanks for having <laughs> me here. <laughs> well, I, I find that I find that rather rather sad that we're not going to gain a listener in your spouse. <laughs> yeah. So so tell her to change her mind. Uh, but believe me, and tell tell her that Nick says that an edited Bob is going to be a better Bob. Oh, that it, she'll believe that for sure. That <laughs> an edited right. Bob would be better. <laughs> so we post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter, where you can also hear Frank hanging out at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. 